Um, so what we're going to do is uh, there's going to be three of us that present. I'm going to be the first one to present. And then second, we're going to have Jonathan uh, from St. Francis Xavier uh, to present um, for 10, 15 minutes. And then after that, Greg Fuster, uh, our friend from the Department of Religious Studies here at the University of Toronto, will also be presenting. And so I'll present my intro chapter. I'll present half of the intro, intro chapter. And then Jonathan will present, Greg will present, and we will have questions and comments after that. And hopefully, uh, the point is not to uh, show off the fancy cover of the book or uh, that we might sound smart. The point is, is that uh, we might begin to think or to interact on the topic of biblical interpretation within global capitalism as a system of meaning. Uh, I take for granted that uh, all of us understand and live within the context of global capitalism and that in some way informs the context in which we interpret the scriptures because obviously we don't interpret the Bible outside of our context. It is within global capitalism that we practice biblical studies and biblical interpretation. So that is the, the point of uh, uh, the whole thing today is to get us to think and to interact, to probe and to ask questions about, okay, how it is that we do biblical studies and how does global capitalism in its diverse ways influence the way that we do biblical studies now. So uh, with that in mind, what I'll do is I'll uh, begin by reading uh, half of the introduction for the book that I just mentioned, okay? Does that sound all right with everybody? Jonathan, you're good? Oh yeah, dude, okay. All right, so here we go. Uh, Introduction, political exegesis for a new day. Political exegesis, as it is currently practiced, has been characterized by hermeneutics that were defined during the end of the Cold War, a period recognized by its clash between the free world and, to use Ronald Reagan's phrase, the evil empire. Now, however, in many ways, the structural antagonism of communism versus liberal democracy is a political paradigm that has been replaced by the ubiquitous universality of global capitalism and the rise of populist movements of protest and resistance in Europe and the United States. However, as the symbolic system of global capitalism is perfected, we are beginning to see it decompose and dissolve under its own pressure, revealed in the form of various crises that have begun, unfortunately, to mark our times as an era of global crisis. Thus, the immediate task of political exegesis is the construction of a new paradigm that incorporates a deep, profound critique of our existing structural conditions, an exercise in engaged biblical interpretation that questions the unsolicited dominance of market ideology and values the non-representable excess created by this fantasy. A more modest claim made by Naomi Klein in her book, the shock doctrine, the rise of disaster capitalism, is that the exploitation of crisis and disaster has been the modus operandi of disaster capitalism since the Milton Friedman movement usurped Keynesian approaches to macroeconomic theory in the late 60s global marketplace. Klein argues, rightfully, that catastrophic events and global disasters are an exciting market opportunity, a necessary pretext to overrule the expressed wishes of voters in the interest of economic technocrats. For Klein, the emerging corporatist state model functions on the necessary precondition of increased state surveillance, 
mass incarceration, shrinking civil liberties, and coercive interrogation. Undergirding the disaster capitalist approach is the reified notion that if the market is not functioning properly, it is because human interference has created a market disturbance and perturbed the delicate balance of unbridled capital exchange. While we should appreciate the accessibility and popularity of Klein's work in the public consciousness of the North American left, her analysis fails to identify global capital as, in some manner, the root cause of our contemporary global crisis. And thus, instead, the corporate estate model looks more like a greedy raven picking up unfortunate scraps from the wake of a roadside disaster. Such an approach uh, deflects attention from the systematic irrationality of the capitalist system itself and encourages sympathetic liberal approaches to change with a view to saving the system. The cynical distance of the North American left, with all its ironic detachment and neo-Keynesian sentimentalities, leaves untouched the fundamental structure of our current capitalist fantasy. The value of a more theoretical approach to understanding our contemporary crisis can be quickly found when we, be when we begin to identify the structural necessity of crisis endemic to the global capitalist schema itself. It has become clear that the structural crisis of capitalism is a system geared not towards the maximization of material wealth in general or held in public commons, but towards the maxim maximization of wealth in the socially antagonistic form of private profit, specifically in the hands of those who own the means of production, distribution, and capital exchange. Thus, in this present economic crisis, the poor and working classes have been instructed to maintain effective demand by plunging further and further into debt via credit, credit expenditures cheap loans, and subprime mortgages. Between the fourth quarter of 1981 and that of 2008, credit market debt in the United States mushroomed from 164% to 378% of total American GDP, while at roughly the same time, the average real income of the bottom 90% of American taxpayers declined by more than 7%. Global capital continues to prey on the crisis of, the, of poor and working peoples through more simple credit arrangements, which reveal the structural imbalance necessary for capitalist control. Predatory lending rates, increased rates for automobile and home insurance, rent-to-own furniture, and roll-over loans through credit companies like Check2Cash, FastCash, or H&R Block. On a macroeconomic level, the structural condition of crisis continues to be noticed in the escalation of international debt and the growing reality of financial precarity worldwide. Through the expansion of the credit system, it is estimated that the United States owes in excess of $11 trillion to global finance conglomerates, while at the same time the U.S. government gladly took over the liabilities of the giant mortgage companies Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to the tune of $5.4 trillion. Globally, the size of the, of the real economy in which goods and services are produced is estimated at $48.1 trillion, while the size of the global financial economy adds up to more than $151 trillion. This means that the global financial economy, the speculative economy, has swollen to more than three times the size of the real economy, or actual money. Perhaps figures like this help to augment our definition of global capitalism 
as a fantasy that produces a non-recognizable excess, often in the form of what appear as contradictions to free market ideology, poverty, homelessness, and environmental destruction. Recent shifts in the relationship between state and market indicate the predominance of the multinational corporation at the expense of democratically elected regulatory state bodies. In their work entitled System in Crisis, The Dynamics of Free Market Capitalism, authors James Petrus and Henry, Henry Veltmeyer highlight the growing predominance of transnational corporations to usurp the power of the state in times of economic uncertainty. Global capital, and specifically the transnational corporation, has replaced or is replacing the state as the dominant mode of political economic power at the international level. And this phenomenon should change the manner in which we approach the problem of global instability. Thus, when we begin to search for answers regarding the nature and the scope of our global crises, we must bear in mind the general impotence of the state against the ubiquitous power of the global marketplace. It is the structural crisis of global capital that has provided us with a consistent narrative of instability from which we interpret our world, a perpetual state of exception that perversely defines economic, social, and ecological instability as normal. In this new state of exception provided by global capital, the proper functioning of the law is thus unformulatable as power exists outside of the scope of democratic control and legal order. The exception proves what has been there all along, that true sovereignty exists in the hands of those who control capital and define reality in times of an embedded crisis. That global capital defines reality as a constant state of exception means that the vast majority of people are deprived of any meaningful cognitive orientation and thus lack the means, administrative, democratic, or economic, by which to change their circumstances in any significant fashion. In recent theoretical engagements with the issue, what has become increasingly clear is that the incessant development of global capital relies on a constitutive imbalance within the system that crisis, ecological, financial, social, are far from constrictions on the global market. Instead, they are the very impetus of its development. Slavoj Žižek notes that in global capitalism, the structural crisis of capital is contained within the system itself, and this internal contradiction compels capital to extended permanent reproduction. According to Žižek, global capital is a ubiquitous cultural system that relies on structural crisis or failure as a necessary feature of its own existence, a pathological imbalance that requires crisis to animate the libidinal structure of consumptive desire. Zizek's notion is a useful one, for it identifies the structural necessity of global crisis, ecological, economic, or social, which unfortunately appear as atomized or isolated phenomena within the worldless constellation of global capital. This paradoxical feature of global capitalism is its ability to transform crisis into the source of its power. In these conditions, crisis is not, ancillary, is not an ancillary feature to the structure of commodity exchange, nor is it a strange coincidence and aberration. Rather, the normal state of global capital is the permanent 
revolutionizing of its own conditions of existence, evident in any number of rotating crises or disturbances imminent to the system. What does this mean for biblical interpretation? Global capitalism in many ways represents a new or novel ideological constellation, one that cannot be represented within the field of previous ideological constellations, one that requires a new lens of interpretive concerns. Within this ideological constellation, biblical interpretation does not remain imminent to itself, but is fashioned by the goals, expectations, concerns, and dialectical tensions established by global capital in its diverse forms. It would be remiss to call global capital a hermeneutical lens in a formal manner, as it lacks one single methodological principle. However, global capital now appears to function in what Michel Foucault might call an internal regime of power, which means that it serves, among other things, to organize biblical interpretation in terms of intelligibility and coherence to its ends. Within the discourse of biblical interpretation, it is specifically a question of what governs statements and the way in which they govern each other that constitutes a set of propositions that are methodologically or scientifically or even theologically credible. So it's capitalism that tells us what is credible in that sense. So to suggest that contemporary biblical interpretation is not impacted by the logic of global capitalism is akin to suggesting, for instance, that we could understand, let's say, uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher apart from Romanticism, or that perhaps the Apostle Paul was not influenced by the goals or expectations of the Roman Empire itself. In order to appear as truthful biblical interpretation, as diverse as truthful biblical interpretation is, Biblical studies is already linked in a circular manner with systems of power which produce and sustain the regulation, distribution, and operation of appropriate statements within global capital. This is not to suggest in a naive manner that global conglomerates purposely manipulate the proceedings of yearly society meetings or that senior scholars are paid off by dishonest publishers to write in favorable pro-capitalist terms. In this sense, the paranoid should understand or they should recognize that there is no global conspiracy. Instead, biblical studies proceeds within the context of global capital because it purposely avoids or simply cannot address ultimate questions of meaning. Specifically, the modern historical critical method and its approach to scholarly objectivity leaves religious material as an isolated feature of the past and this now functions as an apologetic for capital in the world. It is the perceived distance between the neutral objective observer and his or her observed religious phenomena that keep religious phenomena as an isolated feature of the past, usually viewed in terms of ancient primitivism or naive superstition. In this context, questions of ultimate meaning are inappropriate to the task of scholarly biblical interpretation and presuppositions, which are fashioned in an ideological manner, remain concealed in the interest of an imagined scholarly objectivity. So, modern biblical interpretation has proceeded and continues to proceed in a distinctly apolitical fashion. Biblical history remains an ad hoc collection of random, isolated elements, and likewise, possible solutions 
and alternatives to our global plight remain somewhere buried in the historical mud. Biblical scholarship of the modern ilk in general relies on a unitary conception of rationality, one which takes for granted that any attentive and honest observer, unblended and undistracted by the prejudices of prior commitments to belief, would report the same data, the same facts. It is the radical positivism of the Enlightenment period that has remained as a strange artifact or ode to modernity in biblical interpretation, an approach that establishes a functional relationship between an unbiased, neutral observer and religious or biblical data that can be uh, demonstrated as observable fact. It is the avowedly unbiased approach of the modern biblical interpreter that sees scholarly objectivity as simply the world seen aright. And, in a certain, and to a certain extent, these methodological assumptions still remain disguised, often as historical rigor. Within this scholarly world seen aright, the question of the impact of global capital on the practice of biblical interpretation is quite simply a question that cannot appropriately be asked. In this context, economic, environmental, or social crises cannot legitimately be included into the methodological assumptions of the modern critical historical approach, and therefore the practice of biblical interpretation continues to proceed as if global crises created by capital are unformulatable, an unrecognized, neglected element within the, her within the hermeneutical horizon of the interpreter. Now, with the advent of postmodern biblical interpretation, and the subsequent recognition of ideology as ideology, it was thought that with the, the addition of new, advanced hermeneutical approaches and the rejection of modern object-centered rationalities, biblical interpretation might be able to identify in a more clear manner its own relationship to ideology and thus reveal latent, liberating elements overlooked by the false modern fascination with scholarly objectivity. Guided by the notion that all interpretation was, in some sense, a false will to power, postmodern biblical interpretation was a rallying cry meant to establish a new relationship between the Bible and subaltern political approaches. In many ways, now, postmodern biblical interpretation remains within the confines of the pessimistic wisdom of a failed encounter, one that seeks to maintain a distance between the interpreter and the impossible fullness of an idea. In order to avoid the totalitarian consequences of a full attachment to an idea, the postmodern biblical, uh, sorry, postmodern biblical interpretation has sought to consistently reassert difference as a feature of, it, of its existence, noted perhaps by the growing proliferation of alternative subsections at yearly academic conferences and scholarly gatherings. Right? Within this context, the exhausting proliferation of, of difference and the creation of nuanced scholarly identities occur in a manner that is consistent with the goals and expectations of global capital. Developing a scholarly apparatus that cannot address fundamental questions of ultimate meaning. This confirms the insight of Alain Badu, whose perspective into the dynamics of capital can be appropriately applied to the practice of postmodern biblical interpretation. I'll quote Badu. Capital demands a permanent creation of subjective and territorial identities 
in order for its principle of movement to homogenize its space of actions. Identities, moreover, that never demand anything but the right to be exposed in the same way as others to the uniform prerogatives of the market. Here, the dynamics of global capital does not necessarily limit the proliferation of alternative scholarly voices, nor does capital necessarily produce uh, violent scholarly uh, hegemony or academic monoculture or quash minority voices. Instead, global capital produces scholarly subjectivities with impressive variety, a context in which almost any interpretive approach is now valid, except for the approach that challenges the patron of all interpretation itself, which is global capital. Now, global capital functions not only as a simple means of monetary exchange, but rather as a universal... Well, hold on one sec, we'll close the door here. Thanks, guys. I'm almost done. <laughs> now, global capital functions not only as a simple means of monetary exchange, but rather as a universal system of meaning, one that affects the very fibers of ourselves and thus fashions the goals, expectations, insights, and practices of scholarly interpretation. Due to the manner in which global capital proceeds as a universal system of meaning, there is no nook or cranny within biblical interpretation that remains imminent to itself. Recognizing global capital as a universal system of meaning in a formal manner does not negate its impact within the practice of biblical scholarship, nor does raising global capital to the level of hermeneutical awareness change the cold fact that capital is already, and I'll quote Paul here, in all and through all. In many ways, this is a perverse yet stimulating turn in biblical scholarship itself. All of a sudden, the old fault lines of liberal Protestant interpretation versus conservative evangelical, evangelical interpretation are quite simply irrelevant. All exist within the same machinery and apparatus. Likewise, biblical interpretation that previously sought to fashion an authentic account of one's relationship to the state, and here I'm thinking of popular uh, you know, so-and-so versus empire, right? That type of thing, that genre. They should begin to revise this relationship given the irrelevance of the state within the horizon of global capital. The ubiquity of global capital has established new fault lines that demand new models of interpretation, ones that include the contradiction and crises that capital creates in order to address and provide meaning to those of us who suffer under these various rotating crises. Last paragraph. The goal of this volume is not to provide voice to a particular shade of difference. We are demanding more than just another voice to add to the mix. Nor should we fall into the trap of finding capital everywhere in the past, thus reifying the concept of capital in an anachronistic manner, as if it were always there. This volume represents a robust attempt to include capital and the rotating crises within which the interpreter, we, exist, formally into the field of biblical interpretation, so that biblical interpretation may become meaningful within the precarious context of global crisis. It may have been a simpler task to organize the volume around specific issues of crisis, 
a volume for ecology, a volume for debt, a volume for this or that other aspect of crisis. But we thought that these issues in isolation would not highlight the universal manner in which global capital now proceeds. That's why we, we've included them all together in this volume. Organizing discussions of various crises together perhaps helps us to see these crises as a whole and not as unrelated or isolated phenomena. I'll end there. Okay, so um, one of the presenters in the book is uh, our friend Jonathan Bernier. He uh, teaches now. Uh, are you assistant professor there now? Or? Uh, yes, I'm right, yes. Great, yeah, at St. Uh, Francis Xavier University. Jonathan is a member of CSBS uh, and is a friend to many of us. He, he is a recent graduate of uh, McMaster University has just put out uh, recently a book on the Gospel of John. And is your other book on its way now, or? Uh, it should be out next year. Okay, what's the title of that one? Uh, what is the title of that one? <laughs> 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 it's on the uh, Okay. Uh, but it, it's on uh, Ron again, Ben Meyer, and uh, Jesus. Yeah, see, Jonathan is doing something very interesting. He's taking Lonergan. Uh, and Ben Meyer and applying it to uh, biblical interpretation uh, and uh, is one of the first people uh, to do that. So, very interesting stuff. So, uh, so take it away, Jonathan. All right. Uh, thanks, Bruce. So, as, as, can you hear me fine? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Excellent. So, as, as Bruce indicated, uh, originally the idea of this volume was uh, I can't remember
Okay, well, um, one of the questions that I wanted to bring up, uh, and we'll bring up later on one thing to think about, and maybe you could just think about this real quick, but um, in the context of the university, in terms of uh, degrees that are offered, in terms of uh, learning outcomes, uh, these types of things, how can we start thinking about global capitalism as uh, informing uh, not only uh, the university, but how, we, how the university practices itself? Um, maybe some thoughts on that briefly. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> it's very different than what I heard of. Uh, heard of not, uh, yeah. 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 Um, That's one of the questions we're toying with. I'd like to toy with today. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the questions that uh, I'd like to, to start thinking about and it would be good for us to think about later. But um, uh, one final thing, um, your article talks about um, the Occupy movement in terms of an event, according to Alain Badu. So using Alain Badu's notion of the event and suggesting that the Occupy movement uh, becomes an event in that sense. Uh, can you explain that a little bit more?
Cool, thanks. All right, uh, let's give it up for Jonathan. Thank you. Remember, uh, this is uh, Jonathan Bernier. Uh, the other Jonathan Bernier plays goalie for the Leafs, but this one's better. Uh, he's, he's got a book uh, called Apple Synagogos and the Gospel of John. Uh, very interesting read. It applies Lonergan's uh, method to biblical interpretation. And uh, thanks again for joining us, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. Take care. That's okay, you have a life. We don't. <laughs> and a job. <laughs> okay, bye. Bye. <laughs> That's so awkward. <laughs> Man, yeah. So, uh, so Jonathan got a job, actually, out at St. FX. And um, another one of our own, uh, Ronald Charles, also got a job out there, a recent graduate of the University of Toronto and the Toronto School of Theology, just started working out there. So maybe we can all get jobs out there and it'd be great. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Okay. Uh, so that's, that's Jonathan's uh, chapter there on uh, Occupy and the event and connecting it to the Book of Acts and a uh, really neat relationship he draws out between uh, the Book of Acts and the Occupy movement. So... Um, Next we have, uh, this is one of my best buddies, Greg Fuster. Uh, we used to live together in Hamilton. I know all his dirty secrets, and uh, he knows mine. <laughs> so we've called a truce, and uh, <laughs> he'll now be uh, presenting, uh, Greg wrote uh, an excellent article on uh, Joseph's dream in Genesis 37, and uh, the practice of, uh, of uh, farming and uh, particularly um, uh, macro farming uh, in Monsanto. So maybe you can read the actual title because I just botched it. Sure. Just yeah. to be clear, Jonathan actually lived with us for a time too. So oh this yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> good. Roommate reuniting. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so um, yeah, the title of my, my chapter is called Food, Power, and Ecological Hermeneutics, Reading Joseph with Monsanto. So this was um, a bit of a, an interesting project for me because I'm not um, a Hebrew Bible scholar by trade. Um, I do stuff with Paul and books for the most part. Um, but uh, Bruce invited me to, to, to contribute to this and specifically directed me towards this um, Joseph's dream. And I'd already been very interested in um, 
the discipline of ecological hermeneutics because um, it had intersected with some of my previous research interests, namely Romans chapter 8, which is um, Paul's discussion of creation has been a, a sort of a central text for, for that discourse. And so, uh, yeah, Bruce asked me to contribute and um, I worked towards that. While, while I was writing this chapter, I was also an employee at Costco Wholesale. <laughs> um, so that was a, that actually uh, provided me with, uh, with a pretty interesting sort of critical insight into this, into this question as over the course of my um, two-year tenure there, I witnessed a, a radical growth in the amount of um, products that were both gluten-free and organic. Um, so that was a really interesting shift that happened there and just gave me a little bit in, of insight into, uh, into uh, food production and dissemination. Um, so there were a couple of things that I was trying to do with this chapter. Um, I was interested in looking at how um, the practice of ecological hermeneutics um, pairs with um, general sort of ecological sentiments and strategies that um, people, especially Christians, use um, to try and deal with um, the ecological crisis. Um, something that I had noticed um, in previous experiences and with more reading was that um, a lot of these texts tend towards either sort of reformational readings and so trying to reform the biblical text, um, recognizing that you know, Christ Western Christianity has done a lot to, to damage our environment. How can we reread the Bible differently and see how the Bible is actually pro-creation? Um, and tied with that is... Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, after this, we're having an Oktoberfest party, and this is the Oktoberfest music. I'm not a weirdo, okay? <laughs> so keep going. Okay. <laughs> it's just... That's the music we're gonna play okay. after we're done. <laughs> so thanks for interrupting. Um, and, and so tied with that is also these sort of romantic readings, like let's get back to our roots. Let's um, try to get back to traditional farming practices or see what um, the, the lovely um, Bible from antiquity can kind of teach us. Um, and I noticed that in a lot of, um, in a predominance of these, these reading strategies that there's just an overall forgetfulness of global capitalism and the way that um, the capitalist industry contributes to um, the way that we relate to the environment. Um, so uh, going from there, I sort of, I wanted to um, look specifically at, um, at farming practices and the dissemination and production of food as an instance of um, our relationship with the environment. And I think that was a, is an aspect of um, the world that I think is often ignored in ecological readings. There's a lot of talk about carbon emissions and um, things like that, but uh, treatment of food and food um, producing is often ignored. Um, the next thing that I wanted to do was think about how um, this strategy of rereading actually um, parallels uh, sort of the, the free market. And so we academics are in an interesting um, situation where we read some things, some secondary literature, we read some primary literature, and in order to contribute to the discourse, we just add another, re um, we add another reading of that text, or we add another um, examination in of, of that methodology, or what have you, and we enter that into the already existing options of, of interpretations, and it enters into this um, 
this uh, proliferation, I suppose, of, of interpretive options, much like the prol proliferation of products on the shelf of your grocery store. Um, and so this uh, relationship between the academic discourse of ecological hermeneutics and um, the practice of green capitalism, which is to provide solutions to the problem, which then gets um, incorporated back into the capitalist system. And I uh, borrowed that insight from, from Zizek. He has this um, really great book called, um, oh, it just left me. Blame it on the beer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> too much beer. Yeah. Uh, anyways, he, he, he uh, treats um, both, uh, this, both Starbucks for fair trade coffee and Tom's Shoes, which is predicated upon this sort of consumer guilt. Um, look at how bad we are um, stripping the environment and, and harming uh, workers. And so part of you, the, the cost of your coffee or part of the cost of your shoe is to give back to those people. And so rather than providing a solution, it actually just incorporates the solution into the logic of global capitalism and continues to perpetuate uh, the very uh, cycle uh, upon which that exploitation happened. And so sort of uh, thinking about that and thinking about how actually the discourse of ecological hermeneutics itself sort of pairs with that. And so, um, so I turned to the story of Joseph and I, and I paired it with um, the multinational corporation Monsanto in order to sort of uh, see what happens when we bring those two ideas together. Um, Monsanto being um, a major, probably the largest corporation that uh, produces genetically modified organisms and all the um, agricultural infrastructure that's associated with that. And then Joseph, whose story is largely uh, a story about food. And I wanted to look um, at the way in which power features in um, in the production of food and the way in which uh, uh, the environment figures into that as well. <coughs> so a, a couple things that I that I wanted to illustrate with Monsanto is that um, the free market obscures relationships uh, of power, and so we uh, people as who are consumers, people who are farmers, are often within the uh, market system are. Uh, uh, given a number of options, they're given choices, and this is deemed within the system as a free choice. And so you go to the grocery store and you have this vast array of, of food options and you think that you have um, the, the free choice to just select what you want. The same thing with farmers. They have the option to choose genetically modified uh, seeds or they have the option to um, select uh, non-genetically modified seeds. This, seeds. this is uh, seen as a free choice. Um, what happens here is that uh, uh, dynamics of power are masked and that uh, they don't realize that those of us who work in the grocery store have um, selected what options are going to be put on the shelves. We have positioned the food on the shelf and in the aisle to to appeal to certain consumer desires and we actually removing that choice from you. Um, and Monsanto is uh, a major corporation that actually removes the choice uh, of farmers to select or not select uh, genetically modified um, foods. So um, power is, is an important feature of that. Um, the other thing that I wanted to address within the discourse of ecological hermeneutics besides its sort of inability to, to critique these dominant systems is that it seems to me that in a lot of ecological hermeneutical discourse, there is a, a posturing of the, the hermeneutic as a scientist. And so they position themselves as someone who's an expert on, on climate and they're an expert on um, 
on the economy and um, and all the bad things that are happening, the effects of greenhouse gases. Um, and, and I think it is exactly that, a whole lot of posturing, as though we can get to the truth uh, of who Monsanto is or what these corporations are actually doing to our environment. Um, but what I, what I think is, is important within that is that we, we still forget the uh, dynamics of power that go into that and the way in which um, the, the getting to the truth is, is actually caught up in, in discourses. And so um, I spent a, a fair amount of time actually treating a couple, um, a couple incidents where Monsanto has, has dealt uh, with, um, so there's some examples of something called BT cotton, which is grown in India. And there is a polarizing discourse that goes on between people who say that the Monsanto seeds are faulty and that it's resulting in farmer suicides in India. And Monsanto is saying, no, 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 they're just not using the seeds right. Um, they're, it's uh, propagating an existing cultural practice, things like that. And it's very, very difficult to get to the truth. What is Monsanto actually doing? And I think it's actually, my argument is that it's actually the, this um, polarizing discourse, this, uh, the, ar the the argument between the powerful Monsanto Corporation and the conspiracy theorists, <laughs> or so-called conspiracy theorists, that actually mask the, the uneven power dynamics and the exploitation that's going on. And so it's precisely um, the, the power dynamics that create this sort of a confusing discourse um, that is, is part of the problem, not necessarily the, uh, the truth of, of how bad Monsanto totally is. And so I turn to, uh, to the story of Joseph, not as, as a means of um, just gaining some wisdom from the Bible and saying how we can defeat Monsanto. Neither is it an opportunity to look to Monsanto and, and uh, get a, a methodological apparatus that we can now plunk onto the Joseph story and, and glean some insight. But uh, see what happens when we bring these together and, and try to read the Joseph story a little bit differently, paying attention to some uh, power dynamics that are, are present in the story in light of Monsanto and maybe gaining some insight then uh, to how this reflects back upon Monsanto and, and participating in that dialectic. Um, so a, a couple things that I noticed about the Joseph story is uh, the predominance of food and its relationship to crisis. And so this is building upon um, some insights by um, Naomi Klein, um, but also um, some of the comments that Bruce made that crisis is actually a feature of this system. And so Food uh, participates to create crisis, and it also, uh, it also participates in the overcoming of crisis. And so uh, Joseph has this dream where uh, his, all the sheaves bow down to his, and this is part of the reason that his brothers throw him into the, into the uh, well, uh, which takes them then to Pilate's house, <coughs> or Potiphar's house, pardon me. <laughs> <laughs> He's everywhere. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it takes him to Potiphar's house, and he goes to jail. Uh, and then he is uh, he is confronted with the baker and the cupbearer. Um, and again, these are these are dreams about food, and Joseph is able to capitalize capitalize on these. Pun intended. I don't know. Um, and able to um, raise his position. Um, then the, there's a there's a crisis where. Uh, Pharaoh has these dreams, and, uh, you know, and the cows come out and they eat the other cows, and the, the corn ears come and they eat the bad corn ears, and and uh, David, I'm oh, sorry, David, I don't know anybody. <laughs> <laughs> what am I doing here? Do I even know the Bible? <laughs> yeah. What a hack, eh? You're the department producer thing. Yeah. So, so Joseph, 
is, is in the court and he's able to uh, interpret the dream that these other wise people, not so wise, I guess, are able to, he's able to tell Pharaoh, this is what's going to happen. There's going to be a food shortage in this land. And um, what, the, what this crisis ha- um, enables is Joseph to actually capitalize on this situation. He's ap- actually able to um, uh, use the, the difficult situation that Pharaoh's in to uh, raise his own position in the court. And so food uh, and the production of food and the dissemination of food ends up being uh, this important uh, this important feature. Uh, so what this allowed me to, to identify is that um, on, one, on one hand, Monsanto um, provides a foil for romanticized readings of Joseph. And so a lot of traditional readings of the Joseph story is that here is a man blessed by God. He is given all this um, wise insight, and he's able to rise and save his people. Um, but what Monsanto reminds us is the power dynamics that go in, are involved in um, this kind of progress, and that Joseph is actually uh, fairly manipulative and um, is pretty awful to the Egyptian people um, in the way that he in the way that he uses control of food. And so uh, that was an interesting uh, feature there. On the other hand, the Joseph story kind of teaches us a little bit about um, how, how crisis um, can harm people who are disenfranchised. And I'm going to take this um, opportunity just to read um, my conclusion, um, and that will uh, end my little section here. So in this chapter, I've tried to think about the ancient story of Joseph together with the contemporary story of Monsanto as an exercise in ecological hermeneutics. I'm interested in a number of insights evoked by the exercise. First, the relationship between food and power is ubiquitous, if not exceedingly complex. Excuse me. Second, the control of food can often result in a very unequal power dynamics. In both the case of Monsanto and in the Joseph story, a a minority in control of food production and distribution can yield can wield an unprecedented magnitude of power in the face of a disenfranchised majority. Third, this majority will act in opposition to conventional wisdom or personal desire when faced with food shortage. So there I'm referencing uh, Pharaoh letting Joseph take control of his court. Um, And also Jacob deciding to uh, to send his sons back to Egypt after Joseph has already taken one of his sons hostage. They need food so much that he'll send them back, even if they might die. Um, Thus putting themselves in a vulnerable position for further domination. So Jacob could have lost all his children in that uh, scenario. This was a striking feature of the Joseph story, and it occurred again and again with different characters in slightly different circumstances. Here, the story rebounds toward our contemporary scenario. Monsanto thrives on a discourse of ecological catastrophe and food shortage. How will we feed the world? Their solution is a monoculture is monoculture mega farms of GMO prod- produce, and faced with certain starvation, the disenfranchised majority can do nothing but acquiesce. But there are opportunities for resistance. Our universal experience of Monsanto's domination contrasts the story of Joseph, in which his relationship to power is characterized by a slow rise to power. This story allows us to see how much food production and distribution can be effective in shifting power dynamics. As I've already gleaned from Chris Hedges, who's another scholar I interact with, he's great, I would recommend reading him. 
uh, food becomes a place where the 99% can begin to take back control of their own lives from the ruling corporate class. Solutions will not necessarily come in the form of a primitivizing of our food production system. Indeed, irreparable damage has already been done to the global environment such that this is not possible. I'm building off a couple theorists there, including someone named Clive Hamilton. The free corn in Mexico is a chilling feature, a fixture in this erosion of the Earth's biodiversity. So this is again another example of Monsanto's um, uh, effects on the environment where uh, Monsanto GMO corn crossbreeds with, um, with uh, uh, traditional Mexican varieties and produce these sort of freak corn that nobody can eat and it doesn't reproduce pro uh, properly and basically just completely um, destroys uh, the traditional um, biodiversity. The localization of our food system has its appeal. At best, this results in slow, steady changes that tend to be geared towards the established middle class those are the ones who can buy the organic products in Costco, without much consideration about those for whom healthy food is an ill-afforded luxury. How many city dwellers really know how to be effective farmers anyway? It is more likely, however, that such antithetical efforts may be co-opted by the capitalist markets just like organic farming and fair trade coffee. A more apocalyptic outlook witnesses the destabilization of the capitalist system, at least as we know it. Perhaps food shortages due to lack of transport resources will doom urban food deserts to destruction. Drastic changes resulting from unavoidable ecological disaster may force revolution and not reform. This is the reality we ought to live in light of without a naive hope that crisis can be averted. The clarion call of the Hebrew Bible is hinted at in Genesis 44, in which Judah's desire to return to Egypt for grain is for the benefit of future generations, even at the possible expense of his own life. Desire for the future generation developed in the Hebrew Bible is the, ex is the expectation of the righteous remnant characterized by the preservation of the nation but at the expense of catastrophic human loss. Perhaps amidst the expectation of environmental disaster and the destruction of food resources, the anticipation of a surviving, surviving remnant is an opportunity for hope. To be clear, this is not a call for some otherworldly or immaterial expectation. Jensen notes that Quote, the Hebrew Bible never loses sight of the material basis of existence. It does not look forward to an ethereal existence in heaven or elsewhere where there is no question of food. A strong connection to the land and the material realities of existence is central to an effective ecological hermeneutic and an opportunity for the survival of the community. <laughs>